910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. Last episode, we took you through the very detailed prophetic visions from chapter 11 of Daniel, and we showed the way the vision was fulfilled historically in a very detailed account with a lot of Greek names that you probably don't even remember. And we showed how it was fulfilled historically from the time of Cyrus of Persia, releasing the Jews from exile in Babylon in 539 BC through Seleucid IV's reign over the Hellenistic Seleucid Empire, which that reign ended in 175 BC. And if you'll remember, the Seleucid Empire covered the lands that were to the north of the Promised Land. And they were at war with the Ptolemaic Empire that laid to the south of the Promised Land. So if you remember, as we've said over and over, God's people were geographically in the middle. And they are really affected and suffering because of this. Definitely. We couldn't get through all of the details of Chapter 11 in the last episode and how it all worked through history. So we're going to continue this week. And I'd like to tell you the names are getting easier, but they're not. We're going to start with the successor to Antiochus III's throne. And if you think back to last week's episode, he had two sons when he died, Antiochus IV, of course, and the Romans were holding him hostage. Now, think back a few episodes ago, we talked about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Remember, he's the guy they named Epimenes, the madman. He was the little horn. And we said he started out small and he grew We even said he started out as a Roman prisoner. Well, here in chapter 11, we see how that all came about. The other son, his brother, was Seleucid IV. So with his older brother Antiochus IV being held hostage, Seleucid IV ascends to the throne. Seleucid IV has two sons, an infant named, can you guess, Antiochus. Go figure. (laughs) And Demetrius, a name we haven't seen yet. So as Part of the ongoing treaty of Anapamea, which we mentioned last time, Seleucid IV decided to trade his son Demetrius, the older son in the air, in order to have his brother Antiochus IV Epiphanes released. And Chris, that sounds like something really horrible for a father to do. And it is. Yeah, except. Except that Seleucid IV probably had to trade his son's freedom for his brother because Rome would have thought it was important that the son of the reigning king, the heir, be a hostage, because holding a brother hostage isn't really enough to keep a king in line. No, not as much as a son. No. So his reign ended when he was, you're not going to believe how he was killed, but he was poisoned. He was poisoned by his tax collector who was trying to take the throne. This is when Seleucid's tax collector, Heliodorus, poisoned them in order to gain guardianship over the young son, Antiochus, not Antiochus IV, and actually be able to rule in that capacity. Right. But shortly after Seleucus died, his brother Antiochus IV took the throne anyway. And he is the most important character in the history of the outline for the Jewish people so far. Like we said, he was the little horn from chapter eight who set himself on the throne in place of the rightful heir. He's a very bad man. In fact, as you said earlier, Rose, he used the name Epiphanes, meaning God manifest or glorious illustrious. I mean, if you're going to name yourself, why not? Right. (laughs) He's not too full of himself. 
you know, but like you said, <laughs> many who knew him actually referred to as Epimenes, meaning the mad one, because he seems pretty crazy. And he reigned from 175 to 164 BC. Now, he was a terrible persecutor of the Jews, and he defiled the temple. If you'll remember in episode 108, we said that God told Daniel because of the people's continued unrepentant sin that they had more trouble coming. And guess who it is? Their trouble is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Right. Daniel eleven twenty one tells us that in place of Seleucid IV, and now I'm reading scripture, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Being Seleucid IV's brother, Antiochus IV Epiphanes hadn't been given royal majesty. The one given royal majesty would have been one of Seleucid's sons. His young son, the infant Antiochus in the story, was named the formal head of state for a few years under the guardianship of the tax collector, Heliodorus. Remember, he had his father killed. But Antiochus IV, being the man he is, shows up with an army and forced his way onto the throne, something that was contested by some in the Seleucid Empire. Yeah, well, if he's a madman, no wonder. <laughs> Daniel 11.21 continues. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And some versions say that he obtained the kingdom through intrigue. You know, history shows both intrigue and flattery. Some historians say that he made himself co-regent with his namesake, the infant Antiochus, for a few years before eventually having him murdered. I mean, can you imagine? No. Another possibility is that he married the infant Antiochus's mother, who was his sister-in-law. Yeah, his sister-in-law, in an attempt to legitimize himself as heir to the throne. And that's either true or he had a wife by the exact same name. And it's also suggested that he paid off a lot of people to support him in his efforts. Okay, so verse 22 continues, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And as we're going to see, he would sweep away armies or anyone else who went up against him for a while. So... Chris, let's talk about this Prince of the Covenant, because this shows a whole other aspect of what was happening with the Jewish people, besides the wars that were happening in the land between the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic Empire. So most commentators believe the Prince of the Covenant is a reference to the Jewish high priest, Onias III, because he was over the people of God's covenant. Right. And Onias attempted to resist the pressure that was coming from the Seleucid authorities towards the Hellenization of the empire. They wanted to Hellenize it and he was fighting against it, you know, because that would have involved Greek customs and practices that were antithetical to God's laws. So Antiochus had him removed and he replaced him with someone more compliant. And that guy's name was Joshua and it was immediately changed to Jason. So under Jason's leadership, that's when we talked about this before, the gymnasium where the Greek sports were played nude, which was, you know, beside the temple. We mentioned that before. And Antiochus had access to the temple treasury now under this new guy. And he would use those funds to fund his military campaigns and it angered the Jewish people. No doubt. Eventually, Antiochus IV allowed Melanus a Tobiad, which was the people who were not descendants of Aaron, as all the high priests were supposed to be, according to God's word, probably everybody knows, to purchase the position of high priest, ousting Jason. So now it was up for the highest bidder. 
Melanus was supposed to increase tax revenue, but he didn't, and he was summoned to appear before Antiochus. While he was away, his brother Lysimachus stepped into the position of high priest and proceeded to rob the temple of a lot of sacred vessels, which led to riots in the streets. Really upstanding people here. Yeah, really upstanding. And you can see why the Jewish people that were living in the land were terribly frustrated and angry and probably scared. You know, as we've already said, Antiochus is a bad guy and he's out to take whatever he can get in whatever way it works for him. He started acquiring good relations with Rome by sending a delegation in 173 BC and paying part of the unpaid indemnity that was still owed from the Treaty of Apamea in 188. And, you know, the following verses that you're going to read here in a minute tell us about his character even more. Yeah, the battle between the Seleucids of the north and the Ptolemies of the south heated up again under Antiochus's leadership. The South had been ruled by a co-regency, first between Ptolemy VI and his mother until she died, then with his sister, Cleopatra II, whom he also married in 173 BC. And eventually their brother, Ptolemy VIII, became a third co-regent. These people need to be more original with their names. <laughs> they certainly do. Daniel 11, 23 to 26 goes on to say, and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his father nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So you want to explain how that works out, Rose? <laughs> In history, because it really does. It does. It's amazing. In 170 BC, the Ptolemies of the South decided they wanted some of their territory back. So they plan on trying to invade Antiochus's territory, not realizing that Antiochus already had been working behind the scenes. He was feeding friendship with young Ptolemy VI, who was actually Antiochus's nephew. So Antiochus bribes insiders to work against them. Ptolemy's attempt at regaining control of at least part of the Seleucid Empire, urged on by his quote-unquote trusted counselor who eat his food, as you said, Chris, fails. Antiochus beats him by striking preemptively, seizes Pelusium, which is the Egyptians' frontier city, and not only that, he takes Ptolemy VI hostage, his friend. Yeah, his friend. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm glad I don't have friends like that, you know, <laughs> who will work behind the scenes and stab me in the back. And while he's a hostage, his brother Ptolemy VIII takes his place on the throne over the Ptolemaic Empire. And Antiochus turns against him. He makes an alliance with Ptolemy VI, who he just took hostage, <laughs> to oust his brother and restore him to the throne. And Ptolemy VI was restored to the throne of part of Egypt. But his brother, Ptolemy VIII, kept control of an important city of Alexandria. And seemingly neither King Antiochus nor Ptolemy VI intended to keep this little agreement very long. Verse 27 tells us, And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. 
for the end is yet to be at a time appointed. So the two Ptolemy brothers, who are both named Ptolemy, later made a pact to join forces and ruled in Egypt together. And Antiochus, all the while acting friendly with Ptolemy VI, even though he took him hostage, invades Egypt again in 168 BC. Verses 28 to 30 say, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. Yeah, the first time Antiochus invaded Egypt, Rome was busy someplace else. But this time they weren't, and so they stepped in. Before he reached Alexandria, his path was blocked by a single elderly Roman ambassador named Gaius Papilius Lanius, who delivered a message from the Roman Senate, and they were directing Antiochus to withdraw his armies from or consider himself in a state of war with the Roman Republic then, right then. And Antiochus said that he would discuss it with his council, but the Roman ambassador would not hear of that. He drew a line in the sand around Antiochus and said, before you leave this circle, give me a reply so I can take it back to the Roman Senate. And, you know, like I said, that would imply that Rome was going to declare war if he stepped out of the circle. So guess what? He has to make a decision. So weighing his options, he decides to withdraw. But you can imagine that was a huge blow and he was not happy about it. I'm sure his pride was slightly pricked. Yeah. And so he's angry. Yep. And he makes a stop on the way home. Verse 30 of chapter 11 says, He shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. While Antiochus was taking a stab at Egypt, High Priest Jason, if you remember the one that Antiochus had originally put in charge of the temple, had managed to take Jerusalem from Menelaus. And that victory was based on a rumor that Antiochus was dead. But Jason couldn't seize control of the government and he was forced to flee. So Antiochus, who's still furious from the whole thing that happened in Egypt, returns to Jerusalem. He slaughters thousands of people. He reinstalls Menelaus. And after Antiochus departed, a second rebellion broke out. And he outlawed Judaism. Among the forbidden practices were the rite of circumcision, the sacrifices, the study of Torah, and the keeping of the Jewish dietary laws. And Chris, this falls into that time frame of the Jewish sacrifices being forbidden. Yeah. Verse 31 says, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus placed a statue of Zeus in the temple, the God that he believed was manifest in his own royal being. And he sacrificed swine on the altar. He stripped the temple of sacred vessels and stole money from the treasury. Yeah, and we talked about some of this before. We did, and how disgusting that would have been to have swine sacrificed on the altar, you know, to a Jew. So, you know, that's where that abomination who makes desolate idea comes from. Yeah, and when uh, Daniel got the vision of the sacrifice not being allowed to be offered, if you remember, he calls it the abomination that causes desolation. Yep. So verses 32 to 35 have a similar ring to Revelation. Listen and see if you can get it. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, 
but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Antiochus, we've said this before, is an antichrist. He's a representative of Satan who sets himself up in direct opposition to God. And God's true worshipers stand firmly against him, just as we see in the book of Revelation. Yep, it's just like that. The sheep and the goats are separated when persecution comes. Some of the Jews capitulated, but the true worshipers, those who truly belonged to God, did not. They resisted. Some, especially from one family who this revolt is named after, called the Maccabees. That's right. And we mentioned this before. So we kind of see how all of Daniel is starting to come together. The Maccabean revolt was led by Mattathias, an elderly priest, and his five sons, John, Simon, Judas, Eleazar, and Jonathan. They basically waged guerrilla warfare on Antiochus. Mattathias died in 166 BC, but his sons kept fighting. And victory was finally achieved under the leadership of one of the sons, Judas Maccabee, in December of 165 BC. At that time, the temple was cleansed. The daily sacrifices were restored. If you remember the prophecy, God said they would be restored. The end in verse 35 that will come is probably meant to be the end of the persecution under Antiochus. But there could be dual fulfillments here, Chris. Yeah, there definitely could be. We won't read the rest of chapter 11 because it's such a long passage. And there's uncertainty who this part of the passage is talking about, but we're just going to explain some things to you. Because there's no break in the text, it seems as if Daniel would still be continuing on in the same manner and talking about Antiochus for Epiphanes. And some see this as true, but with a dual fulfillment of some sort of Antichrist later in history. Now, some commentators believe that this section of chapter 11 is about a totally new future Antichrist type of king, especially since verse 36 starts by saying the king shall do as he wills, which wasn't true totally of Antiochus since the Roman army could obviously stop him. But the verses could be about him or they could have a dual fulfillment. Right. The book of Maccabees and the Apocrypha do seem to give reason that some scholars think that all of chapter 11 is about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It could also allude to Antiochus IV, plus it could also be a second fulfillment, an already not yet fulfillment coming later in the form of another horribly cruel ruler, maybe the form of an Antichrist? Possibly. You know, one thing we do want to note is that we said back in chapter 8 or uh, episode 108 that his death was from drowning. But some say he died from a terrible intestinal disease, which kind of would seem fitting, in my opinion. And I just want to read what it says from the book of Maccabees, because it's kind of gross, but it's interesting. I'm going to quote here from the book of Maccabees. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and unseen blow. As soon as he ceased speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief, and with sharp internal tortures, and that very justly for he had tortured the bowels of others with many strange afflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, 
but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to hasten the journey. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb in his body. Thus, he who had just been thinking that he could command the waves of the sea in his superhuman arrogance and imagining that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms. And while he was living in anguish, and pain, his flesh rotted away, and because of his stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. Because of his intolerable stench, no one was able to carry the man who a little while before had thought he could touch the stars of heaven. Maybe that's why he went in and drowned himself. <laughs> I think I would do that. <laughs> Maybe I'm... he was just trying to get a bath. <laughs> Maybe he was. Get rid of the worms, you know? I don't know. And it stench. sounds horrible. Does sound horrible. Mm -hmm. And again, either way, God said that he would not die by human hand, that it would be God's hand. So either way, it was not by human hand. Nope. So Daniel and his contemporaries were going through hard times. We've been looking at that. And the Lord responds with the knowledge that there's still even more difficult times coming. So what should we take away from Daniel 11 and this very extensive history that we've been going through for two weeks? It's what well, we should take away from the entire book, that God is sovereign over everything. This is the foundation for all the hope that we have. There's no coincidences in this world. There's no chance. There's no luck. We are not caught in a world of randomness that has no meaning. We have a God who is actively working out his redemptive plan of history. He's doing it by accomplishing his sovereign purposes in the lives of all men and women. This is the foundation and basis for everything. And once you grasp the understanding of God's sovereignty, you have the understanding and the ability to rest regardless of your circumstances. Amen to that. So let's finish this episode with chapter 12, starting with verses one to four. I'll read. At that time shall arise, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. You know, we live in a world of people who worship a lot of things, education, experience, their emotions, their feelings, you know, relativism, pluralism their version of truth. And they're trying to increase their knowledge in all kinds of ways, except the Bible. But it's only the Bible and therefore Christianity that has the answers to understanding and making sense out of life. Trials are coming, but you know what? So is Jesus. And on that day, we just read what's going to happen. The bodily resurrection of both the godly and ungodly prior to final judgment. And we see in Matthew 25, 1 to 46, Jesus talks about separating the sheep and goats. You know, Chris, people always say following Jesus gives you eternal life. But the truth is everybody's got eternal life. 
Yes. It's just being a follower of Jesus determines that you get to spend that eternal life in heaven and not in hell. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we all are going to have one. We're all going to have a life eternal somewhere. It's just where, where is your life going to be? And you're right. Everybody is following all kinds of other stuff. And most of it really is leaving them with no answers. If If they will truly admit that, most of it leaves no answers. The Bible and Christianity give you the answers to life and what is happening to you. And you can't find them anyplace else. That's right. So what's our favorite verse? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One Holy is understanding. One. Yep, exactly. And that's why we picked that verse. That's right. That's Proverbs 9, 10, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Absolutely. Daniel sees two more angelic beings. One of them asks the question that's on everybody's mind, how long? Again, we see time, times, and a half time, or 1,290 days, which is about three and a half years. Three and a half symbolizes a time of suffering for believers that God cuts short for them. This goes right along with Mark 13, 14 to 20, which says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Daniel wants to know more, but he's told the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. You know, we like Daniel think we'd like to know more, but the truth is we probably wouldn't. This verse in chapter 12 reminds me of Revelation 10, 4, where John heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. We don't know what the seven thunders said. But when God's voice thunders, it's usually talking about judgment. So it's probably good that we don't know. And it's probably good that we don't know the ones from Daniel either. Exactly. So let's finish out the chapter with verses 10 to 13. They say, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way until the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So to put it frankly, it's time to prepare, church. The wicked are going about their business acting wickedly. That's what they do. They're running to and fro, looking for satisfying answers. They're worrying about themselves. And while they're doing all this, we should be refining ourselves by cooperating with the Holy Spirit and mortifying our sin. So what's this 1,335 days? It's 45 days more than the 1,290. And there's a lot of different ideas about this. It was 45 days from the time Judas Maccabeus restored worship till Antiochus finally died. 
There's countless attempts at a mathematical equation that lines up with something, same kind of thing we saw with the other prophecies, but there's no clear consensus on what this 1,335 days is. Is it telling us, like we saw in Daniel 9, that because of unrepentance, there's going to be an extended time of tribulation? Maybe. But regardless, Daniel's told at the end of this passage that he will rest. And then at the end of days, which is when Jesus comes back again, he'll rise. That's the hope of all of us who belong to Jesus. And that's the hope we all rest in. Absolutely. God knew when the time of trouble would end for his people in Daniel's time, and he has a time when the trouble will end for the church. As Matthew Henry states in his commentary, we can learn first, and I'm quoting here, first, that there is a time fixed for the termination of the church's troubles and the bringing about of her deliverance, and that this time will be punctually observed to a day. Secondly, that this time must be waited for with faith and patience. Thirdly, that when it comes, it will abundantly recompense us for our long expectations of it. Blessed is he who, having waited long, comes to it at last, for he will then have reason to say, lo, this is our God, and we have waited for him. And that's a great quote to end on. And that ends our study of the book of Daniel. Congratulations. We got through it. Sometimes we're tough, but we got through it. Used all your time now. <laughs> That's right. Well, good news is for the next seven weeks, you don't need Tylenol. Because the, in honor of Advent, we are starting a new series called Make Way for the King. And it's going to be a seven-week series on Jesus's earthly mission, basically. Don't forget to check out our website, www.proverbs910ministries.com. And please, if you could, we would appreciate you leaving a review of this podcast on whatever platform you listen on. Have a blessed day, everybody. 